Well, before we begin, I want to say a huge thank you to uh, Pastor Brian and the men who came up here this week to plant the ivy out front. Really appreciate your hard work, guys. Thank you for for doing that this week, especially during the warm days that you worked. And uh, Lord willing, in the next uh, weeks ahead, that will beautify the front of our uh, church property, as Brian hopes it would. Let me invite you today to turn to Revelation chapter 11 in your copy of God's Word. I encourage you to pull a Bible from the chair underneath you if you came without one. Pull one up on your phone real quick if you need to so you can follow along with our message today. We continue this interlude. Uh, This is Christ's message to the church. Uh, An interlude, an intermission between the sixth and seventh trumpet judgments. We've called this the comfort and commission of Christ's church, and you can see we're in our third installment today. So let me begin at verse 1 and read up to our passage today just to remind you uh, where we've been the last few weeks, and then we'll begin in verse 7 with our study this morning. Revelation 11, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over their waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that arises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and will refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. The word of God, let's ask for his help now as we look into this Difficult passage. Jesus, we we, uh, pray for your help. I pray for your help again today. Give us clear minds, clear hearts to perceive your truth. Strengthen us afresh with your spirit. And uh, Spirit, may you open our eyes to see the word and and that uh, you would press the truth into our hearts that we would put it into practice. Change us by what we hear today. Lord Jesus, we pray in your precious name. Amen. The news headline read, Mississippi coroner finds no pulse. Then man wakes up in body bag. Uh, This report from February 28, 2014 states a coroner declared a 70-year-old 
78-year-old Mississippi man dead at his home, but later, and in a body bag, he woke up. Both a hospice nurse and a family member called Holmes County Coroner Dexter Howard to say Walter Williams of Lexington had passed on Wednesday night. By his bedside, the family watched Howard check for a pulse on the neck and wrist, but he lacked signs of life, Howard told the Daily News. As the mortician prepared the body for embalming at the funeral home, only a few hours later, the coroner witnessed what he described as a miracle. A leg started moving from inside the zippered bag. Something wasn't right, Howard said. <laughs> you think? <laughs> we looked at each other thinking he might still be alive. They watched his chest rise and descend with every breath and called for an ambulance to take him to, the, to a hospital. He told the family the good news. It was scary, and I thought he was joking, Gracie Williams told the Daily News from her father's room at Holmes County Hospital. It's wonderful to know Dad is still here on this side of land. He's doing okay and talking, she said, but he does not remember waking up in the funeral home. I've spoken to him about it, and he said he was just asleep, she added. Williams was in hospice care at his home. His daughter said he's ailing from old age, diabetes, and high blood pressure. A nurse witnessed Howard look for Williams' pulse, he said, but believes his defib defibrillator may have stopped working. Howard has been with the Holmes County Coroner's Office for more than a decade. Shocking as... That report may sound the same thing has been happening to the church for centuries. Governments around the world and unbelievers through the years have confidently declared Christ's church to be dead and gone, only to find it springing back to life. I, I like the way Dr. Joel Beakey says it here. Uh, the church of God has outlived empires and civilizations through the ages. Many times the world has celebrated the, the demise of the church only to find that it springs back to life again. This is because Jesus' uh, declaration to Peter in Matthew 16 where Christ says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the very thing that we discover in our passage this morning. Jesus Christ preserves his church throughout this age and brings it back to life. Well, I've given this passage the title, uh, The Comfort and Commission of Christ's Church, and I've said that there are four parts uh, to his comfort and commission. Two weeks ago, we looked at the identity of, of the church. And we said that the church <coughs> excuse me, consists of those in proximity to God, those who are protected by God, and those who are persecuted by the world. Last Sunday morning, we looked at the second part, which concerns the witness of the church. And we saw two aspects there. First, Christ commissions his church, and second, Christ empowers his church. This morning we come to the third part of his comfort and commission. 
And this third part describes the preservation of the church. Jesus Christ preserves uh, his church throughout this age and restores it to life and spiritual health. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There are three elements of his preservation in our passage today. Three elements of the preservation in the church. The first element that we run into is persecution by the beast. Um, and there are four characteristics to this beast. We see here opposition against God, the Lamb, and the church, all empowered by Satan. So let me point out these four characteristics of the beast. First, it's a specific beast. As John writes this, he has a specific beast in mind. Look at verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the they in that phrase uh, refers to the two witnesses. Back from verse 3, in verse 4, Jesus describes them as two lampstands. The same way he described the churches in chapters 1 through 3, each of them was called a lampstand. And so these two witnesses, these two lampstands, refer to two of those seven churches in Asia Minor. You might remember that there were only two that were completely faithful to the Lord. This is the two witnesses, the two lampstands that are referred to in this passage. Verse 7 goes on, And when they, the witnesses, the lampstands, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them. Beast refers to a, a wild, a dangerous animal. Uh, and not just any dangerous animal. John identifies it as the beast. He's got a specific beast in mind. And, and what could he be referring to? What beast is this? Well, re recall that John's uh, woven into John's DNA is the Old Testament scriptures, and he often is referring to things right and left, and in particular woven into his DNA are the books of Daniel and Ezekiel, uh, and he is probably likely referring to one of the beasts that Daniel describes in Daniel chapter 7. In that chapter, since you probably don't recall it off the top of your head, Daniel refers to a lion-like beast, and a beast that's like a bear, and a leopard-like beast, and then a fourth beast different from those first three. Listen to Daniel describe it. In Daniel 7.7, 7, he says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and, had, and it had ten horns. Daniel is disturbed by this description, and, he, and so he asked the angel for an explain, explanation, and, and he gets it a little bit later. The angel explains to Daniel, Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and shall, shall break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. 
He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and they shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. The, since you probably didn't catch all that, let me sum it up and say the angel describes this beast as a kingdom with various kings ruling that kingdom in succession, persecuting God's people for, for a period of three and a half years. Then we go back to Revelation. We go back to Revelation uh, uh, and we see that the beast in today's passage comes up again in chapter 13. And there in chapter 13, John's beast does the same thing that Daniel's beast does, persecutes the people of God, and, and he does it for three and a half years. And so I, I think it's fairly safe con to conclude that the beast in our chapter, in chapter 13, in Daniel 7, uh, this fourth, fourth beast, they're the same beast, that's what I'm saying. The beast that we're reading about today in verse 7 is, is a kingdom. Um, it, it is a political system with different leaders over the years that persecute God's people throughout this age. It's, it's government opposed to God and God's people. And, and in John's day, that would have been uh, represented by the Roman Empire. In fact, John probably bases this beast on Emperor Nero. He's not, I'm not saying the beast is Emperor Nero, probably not, but he was the prototype for this beast because his nickname was, after all, the beast. Listen to the, this one scholar. The beast represents major opposition to God and the Lamb and the church. This is the beast John's referring to, the beast, this specific beast, this government, this kingdom ruled by successive kings. And when we get to chapter 13, we'll look a little further at this beast. So to begin with, it's a specific beast. But we go further and we see that it is second, it's a uh, demonic beast. Uh, this opposition uh, to God and the Lamb and the church is empowered by Satan. Look at verse 7 again and let me reread that middle phrase. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit or otherwise known as the abyss. That's the, the haunt of demons. Think back to chapter 9. If you can think back that far, we, uh, we saw demons rise. A horde of demons rise from the bottomless pit to to torment unbelievers. It's said there that Satan was the king over those demons. And, and, and we see this demonic uh, power given to the beast. Uh, in chapter 13, if we jump ahead, it says this, and they worship the dragon, Satan, for he had given his authority to the beast. So the, the second characteristic of this beast, it is demonic. Uh, this opposition to the church, to Christ, to God, it's empowered by Satan. Let me show you further, third, that this beast is given permission to conquer. It's a conquering beast. Again, notice that phrase in verse 7, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. 
He's given authority to conquer believers. First, just take note that we're talking about more than two people here. It's not just two single witnesses. Uh, this is two churches that represent all of the faithful church. If it was only two people, Moses and Elijah, as some believe, the beast would simply kill them. But look at the phrase here. It says, will wage war on them. Uh, the, the witnesses, the two lampstands, represent all believers in Christ's faithful church, and the beast wages war. But then next, I want you to note that the beast is given permission to conquer and kill some of God's people. This is no surprise. We know that, the, uh, we know that many believers have been killed, martyred, uh, for their faith throughout this age of tribulation that we live in. Just last year, uh, a ministry called Open Doors report, reported that 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. They report further that 309 million Christians in the world experience high levels of persecution and discrimination for their choice to follow Christ. And so roughly that means that one in eight Christians worldwide experience high levels of persecution. This should not come as a surprise because this is what we've seen throughout our study of Revelation. Let me remind you of what Christ said to the church of Smyrna back in chapter 2. He said to this church, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And then to the church in Pergamum, Christ says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And then in chapter 6, we saw the saints under the altar, those killed for their faith, crying out to God to avenge their blood. And the Lord says to those saints, then they were each given a white robe and told uh, to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Throughout this age that we live in, the Lord allows the beast to conquer and kill some of his people. He is thirdly a conquering beast. And then lastly, I want to point out this that I think is very important. He is a recurring beast. Uh, he, uh, what we read in verse 7 is not a one-time event, but something that happens throughout the age we live in. The beginning of verse 7, and when they had finished their testimony, might give you the impression that this happens at the very end of the age. Uh, but opposing and making war on God's people is something that the beast does throughout. Back in verse 2, of this chapter, we read that unbelievers will trample the holy city for four, 42 months, three and a half years. 
And the two witnesses, Christ's faithful church, will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Again, three and a half years. Daniel 7 that we looked at earlier says that the fourth beast shall wear out the saints of the Most High and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. And again, three and a half years. Then ahead in chapter 13, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous, blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, guess three and a half years. That represents a, a period of time shortened and limited by God, and it's used symbolically to refer to this entire age that we live in, the age between the first and second comings of Christ. And so this opposition from the beast recurs throughout this time. It happens again and again. It is a recurring event. The beast reoccurs. I've been recommending this commentary to you by Derek Thomas called uh, Let's Study Revelation. He takes this point of view and he says, what is pictured here may simply demonstrate a period of intense persecution without reference to the time of its occurrence. In fact, such occurrences may well repeat themselves as history unfolds. Dr. Joel Beakey, I quoted him earlier, Revelation reveals here not just an episode in the future, but a picture of the church across the ages bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. The fourth characteristic of this beast is that he reoccurs. Uh, we see him active throughout the age that we live in, between the first and second comings of Christ. So, in this preservation of the church, first we see the exact opposite, and that's persecution from the beast. Opposition against God, opposition against the Lamb and the church, and all of this is fueled and empowered by the dragon, Satan, who works against uh, Christ's church. It's a specific beast, the same one from Daniel 7. It's a demonic beast. It's a conquering beast, and it's a recurring beast. Well, there's another part of this preservation of the church that I want to show you. And the second element is uh, contempt from the world. First, it's persecution from the beast. But as we go on, we see next contempt from the world. The world regards the church with utter contempt and, and rejoices at its demise. Uh, again, let me point out three things here as well. And the first thing we encounter is the great city in verse 8. Look at it, verse 8 with me. It says, And their dead bodies, dead bodies of the faithful remnant, dead bodies of the two witnesses, the two lampstands, will lie in the street of the great city, that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. This is not a reference to a literal city in a specific location because of how John describes it. Note the words he uses here. Symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt. That word symbolically uh, could also say figuratively uh, indicates John is speaking here as he's done throughout Revelations in 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 a figure of speech, 
This great city has a, a figurative meaning. We know this further because of the three cities named after it. This city, this great city is like Sodom. It's known for its sexual immorality. This city is like Egypt. It's known for persecuting God's people. And then it says where, uh, it says at the end of verse 8, where their Lord was crucified. This city is like Jerusalem, the great city where unbelievers crucify Christ again and again. Listen to this comment. God's enemies live in the great city, not in one particular place, but in the worldwide structure of unbelief and defiance against God. Again, Dr. Beakey adds, Jerusalem in verse 8 is not to be seen as a literal city, but as a symbol of the place where Christ was crucified. That city is constantly appearing in history. It appears under different names such as Sodom, Egypt, Babylon, Rome, New York, Paris, and London. The city is a symbol of any place where men and women, egged on by the beast from the pit, shout against Christ, crucify him, crucify him. This opposition appears wherever men and women, motiv motivated by the devil, set themselves up against Christ and his people. I think he's right. It's not just one place we're looking at here. It could be any place. And you might think of Washington, D.C. at this point. Any place in the world where people oppose Christ. This is the great city. But from this great city, the next thing we see is great contempt. I want you to see the, the disgrace and the shame that the people of the great city have for Christ's church. Again, at the beginning of verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. And then jump down to verse 9. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. If you would note that first phrase in verse 9, this also describes that the great city is not one place because look at the description. People from all over the world inhabit the great city. Peoples, tribes, languages, and nations. So this is not one location, but it's the worldwide conglomeration of unbelievers here. And note the shame that they heap on them, gaze at their dead bodies, refused to let them be placed in a tomb. To leave a corpse unburied in, in the ancient world was, was uh, the height of contempt for them. It was a disgraceful and a shameful thing that uh, sometimes conquerors left their enemies unburied a sign of their triumph and, and of their utter shame. And so they, they treat uh, Christ's faithful church uh, contemptuously and disgracefully. And just pause and think that throughout history we've seen instances where Christ's church has been treated just this way. It's been shamed and humiliated. Uh, think of the early church in Acts. Uh, think of uh, the massacre of Christians in several African countries. Throughout this age, we've seen 
the great city treat the church of Christ with hatred. Again, this should not come as a shock. This is how Jesus said he was treated and how he said we would be treated. He says this in John 15. Listen to those words. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So we see second, from those in this great city, the collection of believers worldwide, great contempt for the church of Christ. But then going further, not only do they show great contempt, there's great rejoicing. They celebrate the demise of the church. Look at verse 10 with me. And those who dwell on the earth, again, just take note of that phrase. We've seen it several times. That phrase doesn't refer to people who live on this planet. It's a, it's a way John, it's a phrase John uses to refer to unbelievers, those who have made the earth their home. Again, we're not talking about one city in a place. He's talking about all unbelievers. It says, and those who dwell on earth will rejoice over them and make merry exchange, and exchange presents. It's like Christmas. Why? Why does silencing the church bring them such joy? Look at how it continues. Because these two prophets, the, the two witnesses, the, the two lampstands, the, the faithful church, had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Unbelievers are ecstatic because God's word has finally been silenced. The torment, uh, that word is the same term John used in chapter 9 to describe the excruciating pain of the a scorpion's sting. And this indicates that the message of Christ's faithful church was like that sting. It was painful to unbelievers. It, it was unbearable. It, it pricked their consciences and denied them peace of mind. The truth that the record of their sins stood against them. The truth that a holy judge required payment for those sins. The truth that there was nothing they could do to earn forgiveness. That no amount of good works or church attendance or baptism or, or just being nice would pay for any of those sins. The truth that turning from sin to trust in the payment Christ made on the cross and Him alone, that alone would bring forgiveness. 
that truth, that gospel was unbearable. It pricked their consciences, robbed their peace of mind, and tormented them like the sting of a scorpion. But the truth has been silenced, and they rejoice. The torment is over. One scholar says the earth's inhabitants expressed joy because as it seemed the prophetic message of salvation through a crucified and risen Lord and God's judgment on oppression and idolatry had finally been silenced. And so they party. No more church. No more message. No more word of repentance and faith in Christ. So the second element in, in Christ's preservation uh, first, it was persecution by the beast. Second, contempt from the world. But the third element we see in our passage is preservation by Christ. Here we see how he preserves his church. He breathes life into his church, restores it to life. And again, three things to point out here. One is the timing of his preservation. This is in verse 11. But after three and a half days, there's that number three and a half. It just keeps coming up. Uh, we've seen throughout the book that the number seven, uh, you can probably say it back to me, it represents fullness, completeness, a whole of something. Whereas three and a half, half of seven would symbolize incompleteness, something cut short, something that's limited in its length. And here it's not three and a half years, it's three and a half days. In other words, this is an extremely limited period of time we're talking about. John's telling us through this number that every victory of the beast over the church is limited and temporary. That would have been a great place for... Yeah, thank you. Listen to how this one guy says that the victory of... Well, he actually is not a guy, he's a Bible scholar. Uh, the victory of anti-Christian forces is brief and insignificant when set against the victorious and lasting testimony of the Church of Christ. Uh, so uh, we see the timing. Uh, Christ breathes life back into his church after just a short period, the, the beast's victory is, is temporary. Second, we see the resurrection of his church. He restores it to life as verse 11 goes on. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. Well, that sounds like what we read in Ezekiel 37, doesn't it? Uh, Ezekiel 37.10 that we read in our scripture reading says, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. And, and scholars think that this is what John has in mind as he's writing the words of verse 11. Think of the similarity. In, in Ezekiel 37, the, the nation of Israel was washed up, dead, dried up. 
Ezekiel describes it as a valley of dry bones. It couldn't really get worse than that. After their exile in Babylon, Israel was pretty much dead and gone. And the church at this point is also dead and gone. The message has stopped. The, the people of the great city rejoice. But just as God spoke his word, and breathed life back into Israel and stood them on their feet so God would speak his word, breathe life back into his church and stand them on their feet. This is the very thing he does in verse 11. Uh, uh, but the, uh, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Christ restores his church because the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. One uh, other scholar says, history has often seen the church oppressed to the very edge of extinction, but it has always seen it rise again from the verge of death. Put on your thinking cap with me now and, and think through history. In Europe, the church seemed dead and lifeless. In the Middle Ages, the, the Roman Catholic Church had practically extinguished the gospel message with its, with its ritual, uh, with its works. They had buried the mes uh, message of justification by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. That is until God breathed life back into the church through the preaching of John Knox in Scotland and Martin Luther in Germany and John Calvin in, in uh, Switzerland. And the church rose and stood on its feet. In Great Britain, uh, in the 1700s, the church seemed dead and lifeless. The, the formalism and the ritualism of the Church of England had nearly put the, death, uh, put the church to death. It was lifeless. It was cold. It was, for all intents, a corpse. Until God breathed life back into his church uh, through the preaching of George Whitfield and John Wesley and, and across the pond in America, the same thing was happening through the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. God breathed life back into the church and it stood. It wasn't long though, that the church in America, again, seemed to be lifeless and dead, a corpse. In the early 1800s, only 10% of the population of the United States was in fellowship in a local church. That's ridiculously low. Until God breathed life back into his church through the preaching of men like Asahel Nettleton, Lyman Beecher, others, people you've never heard of, and the church rose and stood. Something similar happened in China. And this was in the recent past. Some of you might even remember this. A, a communist revolutionary named Madame Mao, she was the fourth wife of Chairman Mao, 
She proclaimed to the world from the huge city of Shanghai. She announced that religion, specifically Christianity, was dead. During the Cultural Revolution, many believers had been tried and executed. Others were forced into reindoctrination camps. Some Christians were simply, simply executed out of hand. But as you know, the church in China is far from dead. It is massive, though underground, mostly. Throughout history, resurrections like verse 11 have happened again and again and maybe yet again. Listen again to Dr. Beakey. Many times the world has celebrated the demise of the church only to find that it springs back to life. The church keeps coming back to life despite being pronounced dead by unbelievers because it is the church of the Lord Jesus who says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus is saying that he is building his church and all the counsels of the devil and his minions will not prevail against what he is doing. The gates of hell may be in Moscow, Beijing, Washington, D.C., or wherever the devil persuades humans to oppose the church, but such efforts are doomed to failure. For Revelation 11 says Christ's church can never be written off. I believe that the church of this generation is ailing. Perhaps not dead, but extremely ill. The beast has been hard at work waging war against Christ's church. Pastors and church leaders are dropping like flies, disqualifying themselves from ministry. Churches are leaving the fundamentals of the faith behind, the, the sole authority of God's Word, uh, the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture, not to mention what the Bible says about gender and human sexuality. And from time to time, we've heard cheering from the great city when the beast scores a victory, and some are already have their hand on the zipper of the body bag. I ask you to plead with me that Christ would once more restore his church to life. That we pray as Isaiah did, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. That you might pray, Lord, please come down and restore spiritual life and health to your church. And the place to start for every one of us, Lord, please rend the heavens and come down and restore spiritual life and health to me. It starts with individuals who pray for uh, an awakening by God's Spirit that He would restore them to life that he would breathe life into them, 
that he would set them back on their feet. This is the resurrection of Christ's church. Happens throughout history, and I believe and pray that it could happen again. The last thing we see in Christ's preservation of his church is the fear of the world. Uh, the, 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 the resurrection of the church, when the church comes back to life, it, it puts dread in the hearts of those in the great city. Look, look at verse 11 with me. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. There's nothing they can do. They've already killed the church, and that didn't work. What else is there? Uh, they're in dread now because the church of Christ has again sprung back to life and they can't do anything. Their, their fear, th this is not the fear of God, healthy fear, uh, uh, reverence and awe for, for God. Th this is dread and dismay and horror. Uh, this is the same thing that happened to Israel's enemies uh, when God delivered them from Egypt. Great fear and dread fell on Israel's enemies because of Israel's apparent invincibility in the Exodus and in the Red Sea. Exodus 15 describes terror and dread um, fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by whom you've purchased. And then Deuteronomy says the same thing. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised. As, as Christ resurrects his church, dread falls on the church's enemies as they again proclaim the truth of the gospel in the word of God. The world is left in dread. Christ breathes life back into his church and puts it on its feet. These verses are about the preservation of the church. Uh, the preservation of the church, how he brings it back to life. And we've seen three elements. First, we saw the persecution by the beast. And we said throughout this age, there will be satanic opposition against God, the Lamb, and the church. Then we saw contempt from the world when the beast succeeds. Uh, the, the great city of unbelievers rejoices at the demise of the church. And finally, lastly, we've just seen preservation, how Christ will breathe life into his church and restore it to life. Perhaps uh, one of the greatest examples of Christ preserving his church uh, came after the death of this man, the 18th century philosopher. He was also an atheist. His uh, pen name was Voltaire. He was a, a, a strong opponent of Christianity. He boasted, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the building it took 12 apostles to build. 
Those are big words. Of course, Voltaire died. Uh, he said the church would be, uh, in 20 years, the church would be no more, but in 20 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his house for a place to print Bibles. The ultimate triumph came a few years later when his home became the Paris headquarters for the British and Foreign Bible Society. Christ will preserve his church throughout this age and restore it to life. Believers, be encouraged. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. Ask the God of heaven to rend his heaven and come down to breathe life into his church, to breathe life into you and restore us and put us on our feet. Jesus, we cannot do this. There is nothing we can possibly do. Anything we try to stir up would just be phony. This has to fall from up above. This has to fall from your hand. This has to come as you um, send your spirit afresh upon your church. Uh, here at 1095 Scott Road, here in Cherokee County, and in your body of believers spread across the world, your two faithful witnesses, your two lampstands, I do pray you would send your spirit anew and restore us, O oh God, and start individually with each one of us here in the room. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.